Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy. I just want to let you know that I do an email newsletter once a week, just once. That's it. I will not inundate you with emails. It's a pretty simple email newsletter. I share with you news of the latest episode of the podcast. And then it's like an enumerated list. I share links to things that I've been reading or finding interesting or funny or enjoyable for some reason. So sign up for my newsletter at otherppl.com, this show's official website, or you can sign up at bradlisty.com, my website. It's the same newsletter in either place. And I think that's it. It's a good newsletter. It's useful and informative. Hello, how are you everybody? What's going on? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Show. I am in Los Angeles and it's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing okay out there. Day after the election. As I record this, I don't know what happened. As you listen to this, you do know what happened. So there's a bit of a schism. How are you feeling? Have we tipped into chaos? Have we pulled ourselves back from the brink? What's happening? I don't even want to know. Today on the program, my guest is Lynn Steger Strong, author of a new novel called Flight. Every draft after the first draft is about making it more and more a thing I can give to someone else, which in some ways is about killing some of the parts of it that are sort of specific or necessary for me, but not specific or necessary for anybody else. And I think, which is just sort of a long-winded way of saying, I think that I sort of was reaffirmed in the idea of art as an offering, because I just felt like these writers were, were giving something to me, and giving something to me that was so essential and important to me at that time. And so I think it helped me sort of re-clarify that for myself in terms of sort of like, I am here to make an offering. Okay, that was Lynn Steger Strong. Her new novel entitled Flight is available now from Mariner Books. 
Flight is a novel about family, it's about relationships, it's about parenthood, it's about money, class, art, creativity, love, grief, death. It's about a lot of things. And it tells the story of a group of family members who come together for the holidays in upstate New York. This is the family's first Christmas following the death of their matriarch, their mom. And there are decisions to be made around the family inheritance, namely a home in Florida where the mother spent her life and her final years. Lynn Steger Strong does a really incredible job of rendering each individual character in this book in ways that make them distinct and three-dimensional and fully human. She's also very gifted when it comes to creating psychological realism on the page. Just her ability to access her character's thoughts and memories and feelings and to understand their motivations, especially when those motivations are complex. And to then like synthesize all of that and to build characters and to build a world that feel palpably and even uh, unnervingly real. <laughs> uh, it's just a great book. I loved it. And Flight is Lynn Steger Strong's follow-up to her novel entitled Want, which she and I spoke about just a couple of years ago, back in the fall of 2020. And it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? But it was just a couple of years ago. And Want wound up finding uh, an enthusiastic readership. And I think her new novel is going to build on that. Again, it is called Flight. And I really enjoyed it, even as it was causing me physical duress. Because this is a book that will get you involved. You get involved with it. And it implicates you especially if you happen to be a middle-aged person with kids. In which case, in which case, good luck. You will see yourself a lot. But even if you're not middle-aged and with children, this is still a book that you will be able to relate to because it speaks to so many things that are right at the heart of life. And it's just a good story. It's intense. This is a family novel that is suspenseful. And Lynn Steger Strong is a big talent. My conversation with her is coming up in just a couple of minutes. I do have a few quick orders of business to go over. First and foremost, the Other People podcast is a listener-supported show. We are almost to 800 episodes at this point. And all of it, the entire archive is made available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls. I don't charge anybody anything to access the episodes, but I do count on regular listeners, people who tune in week after week, people who listen and feel like they really get something from it. I'm counting on you to support the show, and I've tried to make that as easy to do as possible. You can support the Other People Show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Just $1 a month. Or you can move up the scale if you have a bigger budget. $3 a month, $5, 10 20 whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, 
you can get merch. You can get a book club membership over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help me keep this show going, support the work that I do so that I can keep doing it. I would really appreciate that. Also, the Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. Did you know this? And this is a recent development. The show is now available on video. Previously on the YouTube channel, you could listen. It was just like a static image and you could listen to the full episode, but now you can watch it. I'm, I'm taking video when I do these interviews. So if hearing it is just not enough and you need to see me and you need to see Lynn Steger Strong, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you get to the YouTube channel, subscribe, hit the subscribe button. It's free and you can watch the podcast. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It published earlier this year. I've got to give it a plug. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook if you want to listen to me read my book to you, or you can just read it yourself. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, publisher of the debut story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home by Peter Sue. It is the November pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It started all the way back in 2006 and is now edited by Joseph Grantham. It has its own monthly book club. And this month, the featured title is Peter Sue's debut collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd carry you home. This book won the Red Hen Press Fiction Award, judged by Susan Strait, a wonderful author in her own right and a past guest on this program. If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home was recently featured on Good Morning America. It was listed as one of its 15 October books to make you think and feel. And I'm very excited to get to feature this book as the official November pick in the book club and to shine a light on a wonderful debut by Peter Sue. Right now, you can get 20% off of this book and your entire order for a limited time using the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, other PPL. Just go to bookstore.redhen.org. Use the offer code OTHERPPL and get 20% off of your order. Red Hen Press is the largest and oldest nonprofit independent publishing company in Los Angeles, California. It publishes poetry, creative nonfiction, memoirs, novels. It focuses on diversity in publishing, offering five annual publication awards, and it accepts unagented submissions of manuscripts. Red Hen also offers dozens of in-person and hybrid literary events every year, and it invites those who happen to be in the Los Angeles area to drop in for a visit at the Hen House Literary Center in Pasadena. For more information, visit redhen.org. You can also get 20% off of your order. Don't forget, 20% off your order for a limited time using the offer code OTHERPPL over at bookstore.redhen.org. So my guest, once again, is Lynn Steger Strong, returning to the Other People podcast for a second time. She is celebrating the publication of her critically acclaimed new novel. It is called Flight, and it is available right now 
from Mariner Books. It just published, I think yesterday. Lynn Steger Strong's previous two novels are entitled Hold Still and Want. Her nonfiction has been published in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, New York Magazine, the Paris Review, Time Magazine, and elsewhere. She is a teacher of writing and has taught all over the place at the Pratt Institute, Fairfield University, Catapult, Columbia, and this year she will be the visiting fiction writer at Bates College in Maine. I am very pleased to have Lynn Steger Strong back on the program for another conversation. And her new novel, One More Time, is called Flight. Money is, money is endlessly interesting to me. I mean, it's also sort of like, I sometimes I, I joke when people start to talk about religion or whatever and how they were raised. And I'm like, it's it's not really a joke, but I'm like, I well, I was raised by capitalists. Like I was, which, which I don't think is a, a particularly new idea for, which is to say that the word that's maybe missing here for me is like how deeply American it is to connect a good amount of your value as a human to the amount of money that you have in the bank, right? And so I think I'm, and and like you like you said, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is the specific shame that comes with not having money in the bank, but also I think it's both sides, right? And this is and this is a thing that I was really interested in with flight as opposed to want is just like I think money is complicated for just about everybody. You know, and and I think that we shame around money exists for a good number of people, right? Which is to say, there is there is the person who earned earned their money, you know, who 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 is who is self-made which a I don't believe in right but there's but there is a person and and then so much of their self-worth is associated with having sort of made that money but when you don't come from money I think there's this fear of sort of am I performing my wealth in a way that makes sense to other people do people see and understand what I have accomplished right and then there's also the sort of shame around if the money was given to you and you didn't earn the money and or if if you work hard and you don't have money you know it just it doesn't it never stops being something that people are grappling with in more and less abstract ways depending on how much money they have and I think one of the things that's most interesting to me as a writer is the sort of I love a good Venn diagram you know and I and I think it's 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 all of the ways that it's like you look at the word money and there is overlap for almost all of us, right? In terms of like, there is something about the word money that evokes desire. There's something about the word money that evokes shame. There's something about the word money that makes us want to like look away, you know, like you were saying earlier, or like not talk about it. Um, but also that something is really specific and different for every person because we come from a relationship to money. We're brought up with a sort of value system around money, but then also that shifts as we live in the world around money, you know, and it's, and it's endlessly my, this is a bad story, but I'm going to tell you, cause this is what you do to people maybe, which is that my parents with whom I have, this is a, okay, I'll tell, I'll tell it. My, my parents with whom I have a complicated relationship but whom I I love they came up for my daughter's birthday and and my mom gave my daughter a money tree and it was a tree with with money attached to it but 
and it was a nice gesture. But the thing is, is that like my daughter doesn't really have a relationship to the inherent value of money. Like she, she didn't really, she was like, grandma gave me a treat. Like she didn't, she didn't know what to do because she's a kid, you know? And she was just like, I don't know what. And she started like, she gave some of it to her sister and then she started like giving it to friends and her cousin. And we were like, I think we're gonna, you know, we like put it in the bank for her or whatever. But it was just this sort of fascinating realization of like her relationship to the idea of money is so different and there's this object money right like I always say to students like they put they'll put they'll put a number on a page right but like that number ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars every reader is coming to that number with a completely different idea right so you still have to teach the reader sort of what that number means to that character and I think the same thing is true of money more broadly. It's kind of endlessly interesting to me because it means something to everybody, but it means something almost like very different to each individual, even when they come from the same place. Yeah. Well, and I think it now is a good time to remind ourselves too, that money is just a convention and it isn't even real. Yeah. <laughs> like I love to think about that sometimes. Like well, who decided? We just put these pieces of paper together and decide that they're worth these things and we all just sort of agree on it. Yeah. But what the hell is it? What the hell is money? Like it's uh it's kind of an imagined thing that we that holds us together somehow and allows us to what? trade goods and services. But yeah. I think that you know, the the ways in which you write in flight about these various characters, which I should say distinguishes it from want. I feel like you're kind of working on a bigger canvas in some sense uh, when it comes to the new book because you've got multiple couples, uh, you know, in the same family, just to give listeners a setup. Uh, and feel free to correct me if I screw this up. But you've mm -hmm. got a family with a matriarch who has passed away, a beloved matriarch named Helen. And this is their first Christmas without her. And they are coming together upstate in New York. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, upstate in New York uh, at one of the siblings' houses. They have kids. They're at that stage of life in their 30s and early 40s or something. Mm -hmm. And there's three kids. Helen has three kids. They're all married. Mm -hmm. And Helen, who did not have a will, left behind a, a house in Florida, mm -hmm. which one of the siblings wants to live in and raise her kids in. Mm -hmm. even though it's really all three of their inheritance. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but that's the basic setup. Mm -hmm. And what I love about flight is the psychological depth that you are able to render for each of these characters, the way you're able to make them distinct on the page. They're coming at this from their different angles, as you were okay. saying. Yeah. And... I found myself agreeing with and disagreeing with each of them at various turns in the book. Like I was, I, I admired that about it. There's a complexity to the way that you portray people in their relationship to money that feels very real to me. And I couldn't find a, a clear villain. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I couldn't find a clear, a clear hero either, even though they're all coming at it from different angles. Like, 
one of the characters works as an attorney and is doing well for herself and has worked really hard and has like maybe a sense of responsibility and like real world understanding that you know her siblings-in-law might not because they come from a place of greater privilege or less good sense or whatever it is Mm -hmm. uh another one's an artist or you know another one is a, a former artist another one is sort of a little bit immature and yet i could relate to all of them yeah so I'm imagining that you are living your life at a similar stage of life, interacting with all sorts of different couples as one does when one is a parent of young children. And also, you know, relating, I would assume, to family members. I don't know if you have any siblings, but it seems like you might. Yeah. Uh, and just sort of getting a sense, as I often do, of all this subtext. You know, people going through their lives and then just like quietly wondering, like, how are they making it? Yeah. How are they how are they paying for private school or yeah. how how are they living in that house or why did they have to suddenly uh, you know uproot and move to you know uh the Midwest or whatever it is you know the, the, that happens in life and this book takes an x-ray to all that. Yeah. Well there's there's no I mean there's no higher compliment I think and I'm grateful to you for the read because I think my main goal, and I also worry this makes me sound like sort of an asshole, but my main goal with the book was this sort of constant state of sort of sense of destabilization in terms of, I think it's a deeply human desire to want to be able to take a side. You know, like when my kids listen to NPR in the morning and they're always like, who's the best? Do we like this guy? You know, or whatever. And it's like, but, but I, and I wanted, I wanted the reader to kind of feel the impulse to do that every once in a while but I wanted to constantly subvert or or destabilize that desire by adding a new component to the character. So I think especially as I went through later and later, just because I also don't think, I don't think any of these people is wrong, right? Like I don't believe in that, you know? It's like, it's like Tess is the lawyer and she's very practical and all of those things and she, and she has the most money, but, but also she spends most of the book envying these siblings because she doesn't have what they had, which is that they had Helen, you know? And it's, and it's also just like, she, she is a mom and she sort of has been taught and understands that like one of the best ways to care for your family, maybe in this country is to make a lot of money, but she feels constantly uncomfortable in her ability to actually care for her children when they're right there in front of her. Right. And, and I, but I also, I don't think that makes her a bad mom. I just think that she has strengths and she has weaknesses and it makes her a person. Right. And so I think that I was just sort of constantly, because I think a thing that happens and you're talking about parenthood, like I think a thing that's hard about parenthood and, and it's also just the thing about middle age, which I find kind of just endlessly interesting as a writer. I keep talking to my friend about how like, you know, what have we been doing all these years? Because you have to kind of hit a certain age to feel the full depth of, of just what it is to be alive, you know? But, but I feel like one of the things that happens with parenthood is every choice feels so high stakes and it's so hard to not sort of look at someone else or it's hard for me I don't know if it's hard for other people but it's but it's hard to look at someone else and see that either they're making another choice and or they have the the ability or privilege to make another choice right so like someone can send their kids to private school I can't send my kids to private school I believe in public school I still envy the option 
you know yeah. like it's it's that sort of thing where it's like it's it is your it is feels so high stakes right but another thing that i think i was interested in is it is it feels so, so high stakes but often the things that feel so high stakes we're wrong about right like like whatever school our kids go to or don't go to like the the world is burning like there's there's larger concerns for our kids futures right beyond like the college they get into or whatever but but it's which is to say there there are so many different spaces of differentiation in terms of both the fear we experience as parents and also the choices we make as parents and the fear and the choices that feel important and real to us in our sort of daily lived experience, which I don't think we can help but experience, but then also the fear and choices that are sort of bigger and and our ability or not to navigate that differentiation, you know, I think was as much my interest here as the sort of granular differentiation between the parents. And, and again, I think like, I believe in my belly, all these people love their kids, you know, <laughs> like, like all these parents love their kids. Like most parent, I have most parents I've ever met in my life love their kids. Right. But it can look vastly different. And I think that that's, and it can have vastly different consequences. A lot of that love can feel like violence. Like I don't mean to undercut sort of the impact or consequences of that love. But again, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in looking at the Venn diagram and then sort of using those points of divergence as an opportunity to create narrative tension and maybe ask the reader to ask some questions. And so you wrote this book, not, I guess you must've started it not long after we spoke about want, mm -hmm. right? You said you wrote it, I wanna say you wrote it in 2020. Yeah, it's funny. I think I was I was writing it when we when we talked. I had I the thing that came pre-COVID was I really wanted to write I, I am I am I'm ultimately like the the thing that gets me back into a book, right? Is some sort of formal challenge, like some sort of formal cliff jumping, right? And and the thing that I knew that I wanted to do even before finishing Want was that I wanted to write a book with a sort of roving point of view. Um, and maybe not least because my friend who is sort of my closest writer friend was like, don't do that. You can't do that. Stop doing that. Why are you obsessed with that? <laughs> and I was like, well, now I want to do it even more, right? And so I, I knew I wanted that, but I also, at least for myself, I knew that I couldn't do it if I had, if I didn't put a lot of constraints on it. And so pre-COVID, I, I, I had a sort of skeleton of an idea, which was that it would happen over three days, that it would mostly happen in a house. And I knew that the sort of major plot point that happens in the last third, I knew that that would happen because again, like it was, I think it was in part like around these different ideas of parental anxiety and fear and just like human anxiety and fear and I knew that I wanted to concretize that like it was important to me that yes to some extent these fears are either misplaced or without reason or are we fearful about the things we should actually be fearful about but also children are vulnerable bodies that find themselves in scary situations you know and, and will sort of continue to and so I knew I knew all of that. And actually, very weirdly, I also knew the last the last scene. I knew the last I've never this has never sort of happened to me as a writer, but I knew the last scene and I found it corny. And I was like, I have to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite this book until I believe in this last scene. And that was sort of 
my directive for this book, which was very different. So, so this is a very long-winded way of saying when you and I spoke, I was carrying the last scene around in my head, and I think that I was sort of threading through, um, threading through the sort of main action of the book. And you were also going through a lot of difficulties I have read mm-hmm. that feel related <laughs> to the concerns of your books, your last two books. And uh, I want to say you you moved seven times since March 2020. Is we that did. right? We did. We did. Oh, my God. That's tricky. a lot. It was tricky. It was hard. I mean, it wasn't it, I, this. This will maybe make it sound better, which is which is we. Um, uh, my husband got a new job on March 13th, 2020. Not a great time to get a new job. And because he was the first in when there were COVID layoffs, he was the first out. And we, oh we were, we had a, we had a really terrible landlord. Things have felt really, really hard for lots of reasons, but also, you know, I'm a writer. We didn't have a lot of money and he got laid off and we were just like uncle, you know, <laughs> like, like we had been, he was working like 12 or 13 hours. He was working in like a, uh, he was working at a company that went back to the office like in May 2020. So he was commuting and I was making him commute on his bike because I was scared. So, and that was like a 20 mile bike ride. Anyway, so it was, things were really not very easy before he got laid off. And so when he did get laid off, we love his parents very, very much and they're wonderful people and they were also going through some hard stuff. So there was a part of that sort of that last valve just sort of cracking or whatever that was a mixed metaphor that we were just like you know what uncle yeah so we we put all of our stuff in storage you know i it's it's still very sad to me because i i think that both of us all four of us had every intention of coming back to new york but we just like needed to like it was just you know pre-covid had not been easy um and then it only got harder right and so we, we put our stuff in storage, which is just to say a lot of those moves, our stuff was still in storage. So that's, so that made it maybe easier. Um, but then we, you know, we went down to Florida and we stayed with my husband's parents for a while. And then, you know, there were some other moves. But but what happened, what ultimately happened was that we ended up in Maine because my husband was offered a job and it was a very sort of temporary it was it was a job that the bulk of it would happen during summer and and maybe we would go back to New York. But long story short, like we can't afford New York, uh, you know, like like long story short, like I think it was. And it's and it's interesting to think about how it informed the book, because first of all, like a lot of very angry people who read want were like, they should just leave New York, which which I understood. You know, I understood their point And we did leave New York and we left New York because we couldn't afford it, which is which is fine. People do it all the time. It's not a tragedy. But the thing that I think I'm just endlessly interested in as a writer and as a person is the fact that people prioritize sort of finances as the ultimate reason to make choices, you know? And like, I'm a person who has had no choice but make choices because of finances. But also like, I miss New York every single day and not because of museums or whatever, but like because my community's there and my community matters 
a lot to me, you know, and, and sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, I lived there for 11 years. I don't know. It's just, to, it's just to say, like, I think in addition to money, I'm interested in the ways that money and concerns about money obscure our ability to acknowledge all of the other things of life that are valuable. You know, I mean, even just like we left, this is, I'm just going on, but when we left, it felt, it sucked, right? Like it really sucked. But my husband's parents are wonderful and we love them. And my kids got to spend six months with their grandparents in this way that they never in their lives would have had that experience. And also my husband and I both grew up in Florida. I love Florida. I also hate Florida and feel like deeply complicated things about it. But in no other universe would our kids have been able to experience this place that is like so fundamental to my and my husband's forming. Like, you know, like we took them, we took them to the spoil islands we used to go to when we were kids. And like my husband was teaching them to surf and, you know, like all of these things that, that again, like is just in my body. The fact that our kids got to see that, like, did feel really special and and wonderful, you know. And I think like our finances were sh- were shitty, you know. And 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 a lot of our friends were like worried, but we are so lucky, you know. <laughs> like we have we have a lot of people who love us a lot, and we were fine. Like we were completely fine and continue to be fine. Yeah, you were. At the, I mean, it's a. I, I relate to all that. I mean, it's like the ups and downs of life in general are there for most all of us. I guess they're there for all of us in, in one way or another, but especially for those of us who are up against it financially. And then you take COVID and you kind of layer that on top of everything. And I think it just intensified so much. I, I think there will be so many books written about what the COVID pandemic did to our society in relationship to everything else that was already happening. Yeah. It felt like some kind of accelerant. I think like I feel like a lot of people lost their minds. <laughs> yeah. Maybe me included. Yeah. I don't know. But I just feel feel like a lot of people I look at it, I'm like, was this COVID? Is COVID what is causing because of people being cut off from their communities and the economic upheaval and the fear and the isolation and the mistrust and then you have Trump kind of, you know, in the middle of it all and oh my God, you know, just a crazy time to be alive. And so I feel what you're saying about like, you know, we were dealing with shit, but we had a good family, people who cared about us, a place to go. We got, our kids got to have experiences that they might not have been able to have. And um, I think there's probably a lot of us who have some version of that, you know, the silver linings of it all. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, I, and it's funny. I kept saying at first, I kept saying to people like, I reject the concept of a silver lining, right? Because all of these people are dying and all of these things are terrible. But like, what the fuck else do we have? You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 terrible. It's all silver linings. Yeah, like terrible things happened, and terrible things will continue to happen. And also, right? Like, and also, all of these other things are happening too. So, when you wrote this book, I think you wrote it with a greater connectivity to your writing friends. And maybe you got more feedback on it than you had with previous books. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. I well, I think. I mean, I think a couple things changed. Like, I think the first thing that changed is is when we left. I had I have a friend with whom I've I'm very close, 
but he's a writer too, so I'll just it's Ramon Alam. Um, and and we used to meet for dinner once a week, but then we left the city and we sort of started talking on the phone every day, basically. And I think that sort of shifted something to me for me in terms of just like someone else who was carrying some of this around with him too, and I could check in with and be like, you know, he he knew he knew and continues to know enough about sort of what I'm thinking about and, and, and mulling over that, that, and, and I, for him, that like, it, it's become this sort of fun thing of like, you know, if your friend is also carrying your book around them with them, they can sort of say, Hey, I read this thing or, Hey, I saw this thing, or I was thinking about this. And, and it becomes this kind of, for me, at least it becomes this really exciting and, and rich alchemy of of sort of experiences and then I think too like COVID was so like you said it was so alienating in so many ways and also I think as a parent I was so and just I think as a as a person I tend to have a hard time like there's a moment in the book I give this line to Tess but to be honest it's me too which is just like if she stops being productive even for a minute she'll die you know and I think like (laughs) I I have that tendency and and maybe because of that tendency I have the particular gift of having a bunch of friends that are writers, which is to say that a f- bunch of not a bunch like there were there were a handful of my friends were working on books while I was working on flight and we were trading them, which felt like a sort of productivity, right? In terms of like it wasn't just talking on the phone, which I didn't always feel allowed to do, or it wasn't just like zooming with my friends, but it was like this very specific act of like, you need a reader, I need a reader, I'm going to read. And then, and then we would zoom because we were in Florida and I wasn't, I wasn't seeing any of my friends. And then of course it would be like two days just rolling around inside of the brain of these people that I love. Right. And it would just, it just, it felt so good. (laughs) <laughs> just like it was it was we were so alienated everything felt so hard I missed my friends and my community so much and I just kept thinking oh my god I'm so grateful that I'm a writer because I'm just rolling around in everything that's wonderful about my friends right and then they're doing it for me and then we would get on zoom and we would have these like sort of marathon talks about our work and it was it was useful in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways it was useful that I'm just sort of naming as we're talking is that like what I think was a lot about, oh shit, books are not what I thought they were. And that makes me so sad. You know, like they're not as powerful as I thought they were. And that makes me so sad. And they're not as powerful as I thought they were. And that still makes me sad and it makes me angry and all of those things. But also books really helped me during COVID. And like the fact that books can function as intimacy at a time when we felt so alone and again the added sort of cheat that like it could be intimacy with my friends because you know they're writers it just it it felt really really special and I think it, it it propelled the book in terms of having people to talk about it but it also propelled the book in terms of like what I believed the book could could achieve and even honestly like that last scene like I think like that the last scene is about people coming together around art and it's not something I I'm sure that I believed in when I started writing this book but I Mm. but I think I did at the end what are some books I mean I I have a couple of things I want to ask you the first of which before I forget is like you mentioned that books provided a kind of intimacy and uh 
a solace to you during the pandemic mm -hmm. that was maybe extra considering yeah. how isolating it all was i don't mean to put you on the spot but are there books in particular that you can point to that you really leaned on or got something from yeah i mean i read a bunch of i read a bunch of biographies of artists which i'm not going to remember everything but i know i read the sally man hold still um, which is a memoir, I guess. I read the Adrian Rich. I read the Sylvia Plath. I read the Didion in the Sontag. I read Sigrid Nunez's Sempre Susan. And I also, I read, my grandma died during COVID when we were in Florida. And I was reading, I had weirdly, I had saved it. I really love and admire Lily King, but I hadn't read Writers and Lovers yet. And I think there's something so specific about that book felt to me like a warm bath. Like it was, it was, we were going to, I was going to hospice a little bit and, and, and feeling sad, complicated things. And, and the book didn't make any of that better, but like it was this sort of constant solace when I got into bed at night that really, it, I felt so lucky to have it, you know, like again, yeah. it didn't, yeah. it didn't like fix it. It didn't, you know, it was, it was sad, but, but I felt so glad that I had, I had a book to go to every, you know, like my husband is a really good guy and, and we were talking, but like, there was only so much he could say. And my kids are great kids. But like the fact that when I was alone, I was alone with Lily's book mattered to me. Sure. Well, and it's also the, the, the time and I mean, that's the function I think that books perform so often, uh, is that you're dealing with the end result of somebody laboring <laughs> often for like a long, long, like a many years to crystallize and clarify those thoughts. Yeah. And you're not going to get that from a conversation 99 times out of a hundred. I mean, it's just because the, the labor isn't there, you know, or the, and, and, or the energy, there's so much human energy in a book if it's done well. And, uh, I feel the same way. There's that, especially if you're finding a book at a time, in your life and it's just completely resonant it's giving you exactly what you need that's the best yeah no it's so and it's and it's i also think it clarified i think it clarified for me as a writer which which <laughs> to be clear i still tr struggle with a lot is it's just not about you it's just not about me like my work is like it starts from like a deeply personal space but at least as i experience what i do which is not maybe I'm not saying it's the only way to do it because I don't think everyone maybe needs to do this, but like every draft after the first draft is about making it more and more a thing I can give to someone else, which in some ways is about killing some of the parts of it that are s sort of specific or necessary for me, but not specific or necessary for anybody else. And I think, which is just sort of a long-winded way of saying, I think that I sort of was reaffirmed in the idea of art as an offering because I just felt like these writers were were giving something to me and giving something to me so that was so essential and important to me at that time. And so I think it helped me sort of clar re-clarify that for myself in terms of sort of like that is I'm trying to make, I am here to make an offering. Yes. I love the way that you said that because for some reason, and I'm only going to speak for myself here, though maybe you can relate. It can be easy to lose track of that when you're in the yeah. midst of writing a book. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then add to that the particular mindfuck of putting a book out, you know, and it feels like it's like you're dancing as fast as you can, but like you made the, the, the thing is that it's a the thing. You know, like, so take the thing or don't take the thing. But I think to some extent, like you as a writer, you just go make another thing, you know, like you just you, you go make another thing. You know, Yeah, I bristle a little bit. I bristle a little bit at some of the responsibilities that are incumbent upon the modern author. Yeah. When it comes to like the post-publication marketing and, you know, the hustle part of it. Like I, I get that some of that's going to be necessary, but there's also a part of me that's like, hey, I just spent a decade working on this fucking thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can you please just give me like read it or don't read it? I'm done. You yeah. know, like I did my work, you know, but it's uh, I guess it's part it's part of the process. Yeah. No, it's a weird I, I, I think bristle is a good word. I think that's how I feel, too. Like you, I understand it's part of it and I and I want to do whatever I can to get my book out in the world but also there's something sort of fundamentally antithetical to what it is to be a writer to then like have people looking at you you know like I feel like most writers are sort of in part we became writers because we're observers and because we're sort of careful and quiet in the corner you know and 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 then and also that especially for people who write novels like I need a little time, you know, like I need a little, I need a little time to take it in and process it and sort of recalibrate it and rearticulate it as something I actually believe in. And the idea that then all of a sudden you're just throwing words around is, is, it makes me nervous. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. And I think, uh, it's like the two experiences are really different. Yeah. Like when you're in a book and you're writing a book, that is a fundamentally different situation than when you're out like doing this sort of thing or promoting the book or I don't know, all that kind of like drudgery, like the outreach, the emails. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that stuff. No, different. it's it's hard it's well and it's like I was saying to a friend, it's like it's so it's so precious to you it feels again I don't I don't think it's me and in some ways like I have much less respect for me the person than I do me my work right but then like <laughs> but then it's just this thing that people can just swipe at and bat at you know it's like it's like so quick it's just almost like it feels like sport you know like there's something about sort of looking at something that somebody's made and and it feeling just like a game that people are playing and and it doesn't when I'm making it it doesn't feel like a game so I think it makes me like really uncomfortable and afraid that when you put it out in the world it sometimes does feel like a game sure and then other times you'll get like the nicest email from a complete stranger yeah right? yeah yeah or a message or whatever on so those are the I think those are the best things because no, it's, I got, and you know that it's connected. I got one this, I was actually like having my sort of weekly panic attack yesterday and emailing, <laughs> texting my agent and calling my friend and, you know, my poor husband at this point. But like, but then this morning I was, I was, I went, I was coming back from my run and I got an email from a woman about want and she was a high school teacher and I was like sitting on my front steps crying you know, and I emailed it, I sent like a portion of it to my friend and I was like, 
never mind, I'm fine. You know, like, never mind. Like, yeah. this is this is why we do this. You've got to you know? save those. I think you have to save those. I have a little folder, and, like, I save those notes for days when I'm feeling particularly shitty. Because it's like, okay, I know that, like, it's not going to land everywhere, and some people aren't going to like it, or it's going to get batted around, as you say, and not treated with respect or something. But there are people for whom the book will land. Yeah. And what more? I mean, I don't know. I don't have much. Maybe I should have higher expectations, but I think I've been chastened or humbled or whatever in my adult life. And I think sort of like you, I've had to come to terms with the fact that my idealized version of books and what they can do in the world and what the writing life entails is not how it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, and so I think like I'm happy with just like that one email from somebody. Yeah. I would love for my book to connect with a billion people. That'd be great, you know, like who yeah. wouldn't? But uh, it's okay, it's okay with me. Like I can accept, I can accept hitting a smaller audience, but hitting the people that I'm supposed to hit, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I mean a bunch of things on that, but but my my when my first book came out, which like nobody read, like an interesting thing about putting this flight out is that like sometimes people are sort of saying I get a, I get emails or whatever and people are like I'm so excited about your second book and I'm like what's my third you know <laughs> wait and um, the first book is called hold still the first book is called hold still very good yeah 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 okay but yeah. not a lot of people read it and it's it's like you're saying it's 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 part of being a writer it's fine you know like it's totally fine and I think it was actually really like I'm grateful to have a book that totally failed because then when want was really lucky I was able to really understand first what a gift that was and second that it's random you know what I mean that there's a there's an aspect to it that's just luck and arbitrariness and you know all of those things and like um but when my first book came out my my oldest friend who is who is a lawyer who is not a writer we were on the phone and I was similarly freaking out and she was like you know what somewhere right now some person just like you is sitting down and cozying up with your book in the exact way that you have done your entire life. And that doesn't mean a lot to everyone, but it means a lot to you. And it's going to mean a lot to that person. And like, dude, like what, you know, like you chose to be a writer. So that's, that's what's happening. And that is cool, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's still true. I mean, weirdly, I think it becomes differently and more true like I was telling a friend, one of the things that's hard about right now is that like a lot of the readers that mean a lot to me have already read it, you know, and so have like sent me emails or sent me texts or called me and we've talked about it. And that felt like such a special gift, you know, to have these brains that I love sort of see and understand what I was doing. And I'm just trying to figure out a way, sort of what you're saying about keeping those emails. I'm trying to figure out a way to sort of keep that top of mind as I wait to get kind of batted about in the game. Um, because that does matter to me, but I forget it sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like all it takes for me is like if you, you know, one shitty review or you know, Amazon comment or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said it doesn't like stick to me for a few hours. You're just like, oh, you know, and I tend to believe the bad reviews and I don't believe the good ones and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think that's maybe human nature. No, it's, 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 I mean, I, I have, I have whole excerpts of 
some of the bad reviews that I just recite to myself when I go running, <laughs> just to be clear on like my mental health in all of this. Like it's, you know, yeah, like that I- sounds, sounds like a very healthy way to purge all that. Yeah. You know, just running yeah. and like encanting it to yourself. Basically. It's especially useful during speed workouts. You know, I'm just like toxic, parasitic, narcissist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to talk because, you know, as we've been uh, like going through this part of the conversation, it occurs to me that uh, like along with money, class, the complexities of parenthood and being middle-aged and all and all that that entails, your uh, last two books uh, at least have also been very good on the subject of art and what it means to be an artist. And that's very much in flight as it was in want. And so, I don't know, I'm hoping you have a copy of your book somewhere nearby. I would love to have you read a short bit so that listeners can get kind of a, a sense. Look at that. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. But I, I wanna, I'm gonna set it up. Okay. I will set it up. You can add, you can add to the setup uh, or correct me before you begin. Okay. But I'm going to have you read, uh, in my advanced reader copy anyway, anyway, it was page 78 and then going to 79. And it is a section about Alice, who is married to one of Helen's sons. She's married to Henry, mm -hmm. who is an artist. Mm -hmm. And Alice is formerly an artist. Mm -hmm. She kind of quit her art mm -hmm. and has now become a social worker. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to have children, but her pregnancies didn't take. I think she had five losses. Mm -hmm. And so this is a character who's been thwarted in her desire to be creative, right? Or to create, right? I mean, that's kind of a theme in her life. Mm -hmm. And she feels dislocated uh, at this stage of her existence, not quite knowing what her identity is. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I guess also you know, close to Helen, as everybody seems in this book seems to have been, even though, you know, Helen's her mother-in-law and she had a particularly close relationship with her, as did Tess. Like everybody loved Helen. I love Helen. I want to know Helen. <laughs> I love you know? Helen too. <laughs> yeah. So is that a good enough setup? I mean, to yeah, get us to Yeah, I where... think that's perfect. I mean, I, I feel like it's worth saying writer to writer, like this page almost killed me. So I appreciate that you're having me read it because it was hard it was hard to get right i hope i got it right but anyways no you did i think i'm glad i can I'm, i mean maybe that is the writer in me i could zero in, but i was like ooh, this is just this is just right i felt like that sense oh, when i read it thank so I, I can't tell i can't tell like i yeah this was this like the amount of times i tried to work on this anyways i appreciate it okay i'll read alice takes a long hot shower now that the house is still and quiet she turns on the small space heater on her side of the bed, fists both her hands and rolls them along the edges of her hips. Her wrists still clench when she's tense, although she used to blame the painting, the ripping canvas, working. She misses having somewhere to put all the extra anxious, worn-out self that she still has. Her work now is more solid, like those years trying to have a baby had felt at first. It has clear, concrete goals, clear, concrete steps, the meetings, the court hearings, the protocols, and the people, just like the special foods, the yoga, the long walks. Lying on the bed and visualizing the healthy forming fetus, hands flat on her stomach, deep breaths in for a count of six, out for a count of eight. But Art and Baby had also begun that last year to feel similar. 
Rules that felt specific and exact, but also made up. Trying to be precise, but precise like jumping off a cliff. Art was from the body, while a baby would be of it. Art was mushy, murky, abstract, while a baby would be solid. The obsession and compulsion were exactly like she'd always done them. But then all that time and work for nothing. In that way, too, it felt like art. She's most grateful for her job now because she doesn't have to deal with her own thoughts as often. Sometimes, those years of the failed art and the failed baby. Her art was not a failure, Henry said, but no one gave a shit about it, so what else could it have been? When she felt empty, awful. She thought of calling Helen. She thought of asking Helen to love her, make it better. But what a stupid, silly, childish thing to say, to ask. I do already, is what Helen would have said. What Alice wanted was someone to prove it to her. Prove something irrevocable about her. Say it in such a way that she could feel sure that they would not take it back. Helen was the only one she might have trusted. Henry seemed to want her too unthinkingly to see how wanting wasn't loving. With every man who'd ever wanted her and called it love, she'd felt like this. This was true, too, in its way of how her mother loved her. Preconditioned. The baby was something both Henry and her mother wanted that she couldn't give. Henry said he didn't. It was her choice, but she knew better. She thought maybe her body couldn't hold a baby because it understood she'd never really learned to love another person. Maybe also this was why her art failed. She'd not been shown or taught enough about just loving without first appealing or performing. This was her body's way of keeping all her future children safe. And then when she stopped working, and then with her new job and all the ways it shocked her, scared her, made her feel inadequate and helpless too, she'd never picked up the phone and called Helen, not with the art or with the babies, not this past year when her job got murky. It's a particular type of sad, she thinks, to miss the possibility that she might one day call this person who is gone now, that what she lost was a thing she never had the courage to go get. Hmm. So listeners should know that every character in this book is drawn like this. I mean, there's an incredible psychological intelligence uh, that you have as a writer that you bring to the page. You know, to have a character who is dealing with multiple pregnancy losses who would then feel thwarted in her art and would quit art that makes such psychological sense to me. I imagine as a writer that made some sense to you on the page. Like, of course, that's what she would do, you know? And yeah. I think that, like, you know, in full candor, my wife and I lost five pregnancies in between our two children. Oh, wow. um, so I've been down that road and I, I think you never, you never really get off of it. But it's one of these things where those kinds of losses are experienced mostly quietly and yet there are ripple effects and there are ways in which I've been trying through the years to detect how it's impacted my wife in particular because she bore the brunt of it. So I don't know. I just really appreciated the way that you drew Alice because it just felt right to me. It felt like, ah, and it was, it, it didn't, it didn't just feel right in the sense that like, oh yes, of course, this is exactly what I expected. It surprised me. And then once I kind of got over the surprise, I realized like, oh yeah, there's real insight here. So kudos to you for sitting with her long enough and spending enough you know, time on this, uh, this particular passage, but on the book as a whole to, to get it right, to get these people drawn right. Because the ultimate impact on the reader, which is why I think your books are resonating with people, 
is that it's so emotionally involving. Like I, I was kind of laughing to myself as I was reading this. I was imagining myself blurbing it. And I was like, the most stressful book I've read all year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but I, I meant it, I mean it as a high compliment yeah. because like if I'm not stressed, I don't care. And yes. like the fact that I was stressed, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm like, oh my God, is that not only do I care about these characters, but what they're going through and the way that you've drawn them and the way that you've delivered me to their interiors has implicated me. Yeah. And it's, you know, it doesn't, it's no coincidence that I'm a middle-aged writer with two kids yeah. and all the stresses that that entails. I mean, I'm right there with them. So yeah. you're writing about my demo, but I don't know, just kudos. Like, why, are you somebody who reads a lot of psychology? Is this just something that you come by naturally, intuitively? Have you done a lot of therapy? <laughs> no, I can't afford a therapist. That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think... That's very, I mean, I just first want to say, I just, I can't, because I really mean it and because the longer I do this, it feels like the only thing that matters is that, you know, I think I told you last time how long I've been listening to you and how much I respect you as a reader and a thinker. And it matters to me that you said what you just said. And it also matters to me to say it out loud. So I just want to tell you, thank you. Um, I, I think, like, I find being alive, like, I find pickup incredibly stressful. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like school pickup incredibly stressful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I think, like, I was, I was at this talk last weekend with Ian Lee and Gish Jen, and a thing that she said was that, that she has soft ears. And what that, I, th I think what part of what she was, she was, saying was that she's particularly impressionable to the wants and needs of the people around her and I think that that feels that feels really true to me like and I think and I think some of that comes from a not great place which is that I think there's a part of me the person not me the writer who's constantly sort of looking around the room and trying to gauge everybody's wants and needs such that I might give them what they want and need from me, which is a very stressful way to live, you know, and I think if I were in therapy, my therapist would try to help me get better at that. But I think as a writer, it's incredibly useful to me, right? Because that desire to engage and understand, and I think the difference between it in life and as a writer, and this is the kind of gift of being a writer as opposed to just like a deeply neurotic, anxious person, right, is is that as a writer, you sort of, there's that initial impulse, and it's even what you said about Alice, right? There's initial impulse of like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like a thing that I would do as a person is I would I would sort of see Alice, and I also, it, it also just means a lot to me that Alice means a lot to you because she means a particularly large amount to me. But I would be like, yeah, art and baby and quitting and a lack of like, there's so much there that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But then the writing of the book is to name and understand that sense, right? The writing of the book right. is sort of getting inside of that sort of, again, that sort of Venn diagram of like art is not baby. And also I think I was, I was particularly, I, I, Throughout this book, I was particularly interested in the sort of strange relationship between parenting and art, which is just kind of endlessly fascinating to me and how they're actually quite different in a lot of ways to me. Like, I think that that's not as often acknowledged. And also, I think a thing that I'm constantly interested in is that, like, I find parenting as much 
a source of strength and power for me as a writer as I do find it as an, an impediment, right? So, so I think I was just interested in the sort of way that those two ideas are constellated in all sorts of ways throughout the book. And then particularly with Alice, those things are sort of more, they're a bit more tender than they are with the others, but they exist in the others as well. And I think maybe just the one other thing I would say is that, you know, one thing that I've, I think a lot about, and I think I was playing with in the book is that like for self-protective reasons, I think that, but, but also this feels really human is I like most people I know have a tendency to want to jump, right? Like if if we're using pickup as an example, like those are the cool moms and this is this mom and this, right? Like I have a tendency to want to categorize, but then of course what happens is if you spend any time at all with the actual human and not just the idea that you have conjured in your head about who this person is, they will subvert that idea and they will surprise you. And that is honestly one of the greatest pleasures to me of being alive, right? Is just like spending enough time with another human, like actually listening to them and then having them show you how absurd your initial impressions were. Like I just sort of, I, I love, I love that. I love that, right? Like I love, I love people showing me that I'm not as smart as I think I am, you know? And I, and I love a book's ability and even just spending all this time with these characters. Like I tend to write books, I tend to write first drafts really quickly, but then I spend like a couple of years just like going back and going back and going back and going back and sort of looking for the corners in the scenes or the corners in the characters that are opportunities for those subversions or those surprises. That makes sense that that would be your process to me. Um, like in th- at the level of psychological understanding, you know, that you would, that would come in the revision and that would come with just kind of going over it a, a billion times, yeah. you know, and, and really concentrating, uh, on the text. And I think, uh, another thing that I want to talk about that is, you know, still related, it's like another, it's a few degrees removed, but it's, it's part of what you're dealing with in this book is family which it does such a lovely job of rendering and you're working in a tradition right there is I think there is a tradition of family novels Mm -hmm. that we could point to Mm -hmm. Uh, how conscious of you of this were you when you set out to write like was this something you knew you were doing or was it something that occurred to you like midstream or after the fact um I mean I guess I was it was conscious of it, and I think, too, like, I'm sort of of the belief that there's no such thing, like, newness is over, you know, <laughs> like, like, there's, there's not, everything's been done before, and if you think you're doing something new, chances are you just aren't reading widely, you know, because I think most things have been done, and so I think, to me, my interest as a writer lie much more on, like, an initial new feeling impulse I mean, much less on that and much more on a sort of that books live or die in the space of execution, you know? And so I love family novels. I mean, weirdly, like I think, you know, you do all these things and people ask you where the book came from and it could have come from a million different places. But I think in part it comes from like April 2020 when there were all those sirens outside our apartment and I was watching the movie Home for the Holidays with Holly Hunter and Robert Downey Jr. like over and over and over again. 
And I think and this was in Brooklyn. This, this was in New York. This was in New York. Yeah. And and I think I was just like, I want to write a book that feels like this, you know, because it just there is something I mean, I think, I you know, part of the tradition of the family novel is its familiarity. And I think like at this specific moment in my life, I had a friend early read, read a pretty early draft of the book and she's not a writer and and I wanted a non-writer to read it. And she, but then she's very sweet and she, she was like, okay, I don't know if this is a nice thing. She'd also read Want, which maybe feels important. She was like, I don't know if, I don't know if this is a nice thing to say, whatever. She kept qualifying. And then she was like, it felt like sort of a warm bath. And I was like, no, no, that's what I want. I wanted a warm bath, you know, which is just to say, like, I, I did know, I did know the tradition. And I think when I started I actually was really excited to be a part of it. I think maybe what happened by contrast, and, and again, maybe this is just something to work out with my fake therapist, is that I pulled out of the book and I was like, oh shit, I wrote a domestic novel. I'm a woman. What did I do? You know, like, like will I, does this book have any chance at all to be taken seriously as a serious book about what it is to be alive or did I fuck myself and I'm going to get a bunch of sweet reviews about this sweet lady who wrote the sweet book about mothers you know no no I'm going to interrupt you and just say <laughs> absolutely not because this book captures like that warmth and just like the messy love like familial love is always messy love in general like any kind of like close intimate loving relationship is going to have so many complexities and so many like subterranean twists and turns and all that kind of stuff and you capture that messiness beautifully you also are among i think the best contemporary writers that i've read when it comes to capturing just the the absurdity of parenthood <laughs> I'm thinking of the scene in Starbucks with the cake pops yeah. in the bathroom. And I'm just like, oh, my God, we've anybody who has kids has lived that it, some yeah. version of that. And so it's nice to see that. I don't think it's it's not saccharine, but it also doesn't shy away from moments that are genuinely sweet, which life yeah. has, too. So, I mean, you know, if somebody's got a problem with that, I think they maybe need to look inwards. Like we all have those moments where you're like, oh, we get a little sentimental or something genuinely nice happens. Like there should be room for that too in fiction. And yet, and I want to say this to readers that I don't think spoils anything just so that they have, I think, an accurate sense of all that this book is. And it is a lot of different things. But I said to myself aloud, as I was reading the back half of the book, I was like, oh my God, I'm getting like a strong, like Rick Moody, the ice storm vibe. Like there was, I was like, I, or no, you know what I said to myself? I was like, ice storm energy. Like, <laughs> with the feeling of like, with the feeling of destabilization. Yeah. And I won't say anything more because I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything. But just like, there's a real drama to this book too. Like it's, uh, what is it? Whose blurb is it? Yeah. Uh, Ruman Alam says it's suspenseful. Yeah. Like that word matters to me in terms of an appraisal of this book. It would feel incomplete without it. Like I think this is, you know, even though it's a domestic book and it's about family coming together at the holidays, like I was on edge. Yeah. And we should say too, there's a subplot. You know, you have all these family characters, but there is one outlier uh, set of characters who is not blood related to this family, but who figure greatly into the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that is... Alice's 
what do you call them? Client. Uh, she's a yeah. social worker yeah. and she's been assigned to a young mother who's been struggling with addiction mm -hmm. and her young daughter. Mm -hmm. It's Quinn and Maddie, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Quinn and Madeline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have their narrative woven throughout this book, mm -hmm. which adds, you know, a dramatic element that needs to be noted. And I don't want to spoil too much, but I just want to flag it. And I don't know if you have anything to add there. Like, I mean, that, that felt like a very particular choice to bring in these two people who I think are decidedly less privileged than the blood-related family that's at the heart of the story. But it felt like, I don't know, again, it just felt like a lovely choice. It was like, oh, wow, we're getting to kind of see some sort of mirror image of parenthood and struggle it was just kind of perspective giving. Yeah. I'm imagining creatively that's what you were going for, but maybe not, maybe not. Like, tell me what, tell me about that I think choice. That's exactly right. I mean, again, I think like you know, <laughs> back to this idea of us being sad that books can only do so much. I think that this book is largely me seeing, okay, but what books, what can books do, right? And I think one of the things that books can do is, if we have these set ideas and these set terms and even like these sort of tropes of what fiction is we can just we can elasticize those ideas maybe just a little bit right and i think i'm really interested in just stretching a lot of different ideas in this book but but if one of the ideas i mean first of all i think elasticizing the domestic novel i wanted a suspenseful domestic novel right and i think and i think also like i wanted i wanted to sort of take take the concerns of the book and then just turn the temperature up because I think that, you know, this idea of parents and fussing and love and all of those things, they can feel low stakes and high stakes. And what you're saying, like, I find it stressful to just like walk into a room of other humans. Like it's incredibly stressful. And like, I want to write a book that acknowledges <laughs> that like being a human being is stressful, but also some of that stress is for good reason, right? Because our society is collapsing, right? And so I think like it was important to me that there be actual peril as a sort of, you know, not a counter, but a continuation of some of the concerns of early parts of the book. But I also think like I, I'm interested, if I'm interested in family, I think another thing that I'm interested in is, is what we do with the impulse for caretaking outside of family and outside of like the clearly defined boundaries of family. And I think like the way that Alice transgresses boundaries and sort of misunderstands or is just like grappling with how to understand how to care for people who are not her family is just as interesting to me as family trying to figure out how to care for one another, you know? And I also think there's sort of, there's an early moment in the book that's really important to me where where Quinn and Maddie are like, are at the grocery store and this mom is like, yeah, we're having 27 people for dinner and the daughter, Maddie, is so upset and Quinn's like, that sounds awful, right? And and I want the reader to sort of at that point be like, yeah, it does sound awful, right? Like, I'm interested in the ways that Quinn and Maddie serve as an interesting counter to if this is one definition of family, this house with all of these grown-ups kind of fighting over silly stuff, this is another and equally important side of family, which is just a mother and a daughter trying to love one another they are also a family right and so like the domestic novel is often that first thing but like this mother and this daughter are also trying to form a family it's 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 hard 
in different ways. But there's also like a lot of overlap, you know? I mean, I think I was also kind of playing with the ways that, I mean, I'm from Florida, which I feel like all by itself should explain my general interest and engagement with people's relationship to opioids. Because especially when I was coming up, it was, they were just sort of everywhere. And they continue to be a, a lot of places in, in my life. And so I think, but I think this like, again, this very human desire to say drug addict is a particularly challenging one for me, you know? And so I think Quinn has used substances in the past. Quinn is also the only parent that stays sober through the course of this novel. Every other parent in mm. this novel gets kind of wasted, right? Like drinks a lot of like whiskey holiday punch or whatever. But like Quinn is technically the addict, you know? And and so again, I think I was I was it was important to me to say which of these parents I don't think any parent in this book doesn't deeply love their child. Right. But Quinn's mistakes as a parent have different consequences than everybody else's because of sort of past labels that she has been given. Yeah. I mean, it's like that's the thing is that like I found myself thinking about consequences for failures as a parent and how cruel that can be. Yeah. Like in, in the case of Quinn and Maddie, like she fucks up, she loses her daughter permanently. Like those are the stakes for her, basically. Yeah. Um, but then there's like, you know, the, the more quote unquote everyday failures that parents, uh, you know, that parents make the mistakes that they make that wind up having enormous implications for their family, even though they don't want necessarily to screw things up just often is the case. Yeah. That's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so it's, yeah. A friend of mine is a, is a, is a, she works to get people their kids like get custody for their kids back and a thing we we talk about a lot is that like if we had someone regularly knocking on our doors would we pass you know like like would we like my house is a mess all of the time you know like would we pass inspection as parents if someone was regularly inspecting our parenting I don't know yeah yeah well and also like you know you talk about we talk about resources you talk about people who, you know, might be struggling with substance abuse, even while their parents, you never, like it always goes deeper is the point. Like what was their childhood like? Right. What kind of like resource situation do they come from? Do they have the support that they need? But so many of us, like you, like you were saying, or like we were both saying, can't afford a therapist. Yeah. And like, there's also a part of me, and I'm sure there's, maybe there's a good response for this. Like maybe I have a blind spot, but what I often will say is like, how fucked up is it that you have to pay somebody $200 an hour to give a shit about yeah. you? <laughs> like, yeah. like that's where we are as a society. Like to get somebody to actually listen in a meaningful way and to try to help you, you have to pay them $200 an hour because they're not going to take insurance most right. of the time. The good therapy, yeah. you know, not all the therapists don't take insurance, but uh, like the joke is like, would you really want to go to a therapist who's willing to deal with, <laughs> you know, to deal with Blue Shield? <laughs> like, no. Like, like, uh, I got to give that. That's my friend, Melissa Broder, who I think originated that. She was like, I'm not going to a therapist that will deal with. <laughs> you know, like, um, so I don't know. It just feels true to life. And I think of people who are really up against it. If 
financially with substance abuse, parenthood, all those things coming down on them. And the world is not kind enough in its present incarnation too much of the time when it comes to all of us, but especially those who are in acute crises. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just read, I just reread Betty Holland's, Betty Holland's is, has this memoir called W3, which is about time she spent in a psychiatric ward. And there's this sentence that appears in the book almost out of nowhere that I think is from actually like a copper tone ad. And it just, it says, try a little tenderness. And it's just like completely out of nowhere, but I, but I keep thinking about it and I, and I think about it in my work and I think I was just thinking about it as you were talking because there's just like, there's so much scarcity everywhere. And again, I think this is something that I'm interested in all of my work is like, where is the time and space and energy and humanity for just a little bit of tenderness, you know, because I also think like, not only do we, I think to some extent, I agree that like, it's so, it is really fucked up that we have to pay someone to talk to us. But I also think like, I at least will say that I am most comfortable paying someone to talk to me because I'm so nervous about if I'm allowed to take up someone's emotional and psychological space if I'm not giving them money, right? Like it mm. feels like sort of, okay, if, if, if you are giving me your time and I am sort of being my particular version of too much, you know, with you for an hour without compensating you, what does that mean? You know, how do I do that? Well, listen. I'll talk to you for free. You talk to me for <laughs> yeah, free. Yeah, we're doing this. Is, look, look at that. Look how this that is works. What a Brad, this is what being on your podcast is. It's like intensive. <laughs> you should, a friend of mine recently stopped being a writer and became a therapist because she was like, or stopped, she wasn't, she wasn't writing very much and she was mostly being a writing tutor. And she was like, it is the same thing, but less well compensated. And I was like, I really think you might be on to something. Like, Hey. I don't know. I think it's reciprocal. Yeah. You know, I give and I get uh, from these exchanges. Yeah. But I uh, just want to say I'm such a fan yeah. of your work. And I love the the work that you're doing. I think it's important. And I think it does what books at their best are supposed to do, which is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and to say the quiet part out loud and to bring some relief, you know, to people who are suffering in silence or in the shadows or you know with shame and all this all this other stuff and that's a function that i think your books these last two books um i i gotta confess I <laughs> it's okay you don't yet, have so maybe to that one, maybe that to. it's not even that good it's not even that good i i i keep i've pitched <laughs> but is it the, is it of a, is it of a similar ilk is it of a similar dna it's a, i mean I, I can't help but be myself i think you know I, I pitched this essay to somebody, we, we keep going on and you were saying such nice things, but I'll, I will tell you this, which is like, I pitched this essay to somebody and, and then I failed to write it, but I do still want to write it one day, which is just like, I, I think the voyage, there, no book, no book is as sort of interesting to me as a writer than The Voyage Out, which is Virginia Woolf's first novel in some ways, because I think it's like a totally fine Henry James, E.M. Forster knockoff. And then she just like reinvented the novel, right? Like it, which is to say that like, I do think not that I'm, I'm certainly not putting myself in that category, but I think there's a lot of, I think the thing about my first book, and I think the thing about these first books that I'm obsessed with, these sort of first books by writers I love that are not nearly as, as exciting to me as their later work is that 
for me with the first book, I was trying to write a book as, as the world had sort of shown me a book is meant to be. And I think the thing that want helped me understand was that the only way I'm ever going to make anything interesting is back to this elastic idea, right? Is if, is if I'm writing a book in a, in a way that only I could write books, you know? And so I think like, I still, again, like hold still holds all of my interests inside of it, but there's, there were a lot of choices that I made in that book that I made because I thought that I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you can make anything that you are like, totally thrilled by from that i was i was telling i'm so sorry i talk so much can i tell you one more thing and then you will go home yeah um i had a friend in grad school who there was a certain type of story i would say or a certain type of thing that i would say and she would go in this like really specific gasp and i was thinking the other day that sort of my whole project as a writer is to make the choices or to like think about the spaces that create that feeling of like, (gasps) Lynn, which is like, it's, and maybe it's the stress. I don't know, but it's, but there, there are fewer (gasps) Lynn choices in Hold Still, but I do, I loved those characters and I thought about them for a long time and I, and I, you know, I'm glad they're in the world. I just, I don't think about them maybe as much as I do the ones that I've made since. I love this term elasticize. I'm going to steal Good. that. I think that's the way that we should all approach our, our books. You know, you're working within a certain tradition or a certain form, but you've got to elasticize it and make it your own. Yeah. Like, isn't that always some version of the project? Yeah. Um, love talking with you. So happy for you that this book is coming out. I predict good things for it. I think people are going to be into it. Uh, it's called Flight. And it's with Mariner yep. Books. And is that uh? Did they publish Want? No. Nope. Uh, or is it different? Nope. Different. Okay, so new on Mariner. Um, congratulations. Enjoy this part of the process as much as you can. I I'm gonna readers like you. I'm telling you, I it's it's it is always. I've told you this before, but you your 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 conversations with writers have meant a lot to me for for over a decade, and it continues to feel like this extra special gift to get to actually talk to you so thank you so very much for having me and for all of the conversations that you have had all of these this is right right because I distinctly remember being pregnant with my now 10 year old and just like driving around listening to you like you sort of kept me going (laughs) your child listened to me in In utero utero, and now she's gonna she's double digits Brad this is how long we have been you have been in my life that's crazy. Pretty soon I'll be interviewing yeah. her. Who knows? She'll yeah. have a book out, her memoir about what it was like to be mothered oh, by you. It'll be uh, <laughs> okay. Lynn and yeah. me. Okay, we should we could talk uh, all day. So we should both we should we should we should do our goodbye thing. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Uh, congrats once more. And oh, are you working on a new book? I am. Or I mean, and you are. Okay. Any hints? Florida. First book totally in Florida. And I have this idea about explosions, which I'm not going to explain because I've kept you for so long. But I want an explosion on every page. All right. On that note, Lynn Steger Strong, it's nice to see you and nice to talk to you. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it always feels like a gift. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Lynn Steger Strong, author of the new novel, Flight. 
It's available now from Mariner Books. It just published yesterday. You can track Lynn down on the internet at lynnstegerstrong.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Lynn S. Strong. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Flight. It is out there now. Go get it. Trust me on this. Read it. It goes fast. You'll blow right through it. It's a really good book. If you would like to support this show, I would really appreciate that. You can do so for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get some merch. Support the show. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to sign up for the show's newsletter, for my official weekly newsletter once a week, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can watch the show now on YouTube. Go search for the show by name on YouTube, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you find the Other People channel, press the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. Are you aware of this? There's an Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. I'm just telling you. Go get the Other People app wherever you get your apps. If you have feedback and you would like to email me, the address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Say something. All right? I'm not entirely sure who the guest is going to be next week. I think it might be Peter Sue, author of the new story collection, If I Were were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. But I'm not 100% on that yet. I got to sort things out. So stay tuned. I will leave you in suspense. I hope you're doing okay. Hang in there. All right? All right.